Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 1st, 2019, and my guest is author and journalist David Epstein. He is a former reporter for ProPublica and Sports Illustrated. He first appeared here at Econ Talk in September of 2013, talking about his book, The Sports Gene. His latest book and the topic of today's conversation is Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. David, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you for having me again. Your book opens with a little fable of, you could call it Tiger versus Roger. Uh, what's that fable about? Yeah, what I call the Roger versus Tiger problem. So basically, uh, Tiger Woods, I think, is the epitome of early specialization and sort of his story where he started, he, he was able to walk very early at about six months old. There are pictures of him balancing on his father's palm, and he started swinging a golf club not long after that. Uh, and that story of his precocity and early specialization in golf became sort of the core of at least a, a half dozen best-selling books, most of which argued that this was just a model that you should think about for anything you want to get good at, this early head start in specialization and, and technical, what's called deliberate practice. Um, and so that's sort of the tiger model. And what I wanted to do was see whether that is indeed appropriate for extrapolating and whether it's um, – the typical route to success. And uh, I found, you know, I, I looked at other models and found that what's actually more normal is what I call the Roger model. So Roger Federer, whose development story is not nearly as well known um, as Tiger Woods, is much more normal. What happened was he played a whole bunch of sports when he was a kid. Um, mother forced him to continue playing badminton, basketball, and soccer after instead of specializing in tennis after his peers were already specializing. In fact, when he got good enough to get bumped up a level to play with older kids, he declined because he, he liked talking about WWE after practice with his friends. And when he finally got good enough to be interviewed by a local paper and was asked what he would purchase with a theoretical first check if he ever became a tennis pro, he said a Mercedes and his mother was appalled and asked the reporter if she could listen to the recording. And the reporter obliged, and it turned out he had said mere CDs in Swiss German. He just wanted more CDs. Um, so she was much more content with that. But essentially, Roger Federer was years behind his peers in focusing only on tennis. And obviously, he turned out okay. And so I sort of conceived this as the Roger versus Tiger problem, asking which developmental model um, is more typical and which one is better used to extrapolate to other domains. And his mother, if I remember correctly from the book, was a tennis coach, which is even crazier. Oh, yeah. She she refused to coach him because she said it wouldn't be any fun for me because he never liked to like return a ball normally, basically, which, of course, is actually you exactly want that that sort of variable movement in, in development, but wouldn't be fun for an adult as much. And for people who don't know much about Tiger Woods, he was golf 24-7 from a very young age, at least it seems that way, driven by his father uh, to to excel. Although that's that's kind of the story. Although um, 
I think we need a correction for the public narrative that he was driven by his father. So I, I sort of, in the course of this book, examined the Tiger and the Mozart narratives because they are so central to so many books that argue for early specialization. And neither one is as they have been portrayed. Not, not both In both cases, the fathers were responding to the children, not the reverse. Mm-hmm. So there's no evidence that you can engineer these performers. And Tiger in 2000 said himself that my father has never asked me to play golf, never. It's the the child's desire to play that matters, not the parent's desire for the child to play. And he said that because he wanted to sort of correct the record. And I, and I found something very similar going through letters uh, from Mozart's childhood where his he, he wanted to play with a group of musicians that came over to play with his father. And, and Mozart's father said, you know, he, Mozart wanted to play a second violin um, uh, role when he was a little kid. And Mozart's father said, you've had no lessons, go away, you can't play. And Mozart said, you don't need lessons for second violin. (laughs) And so they finally, he starts crying and another musician says, I'll go play with them in the other room. And then they hear the playing coming from the other room and are sort of awestruck. And the letter that this musician left says like, you know, young Wolfgang was emboldened by our applause to say that he could play the first violin also, (laughs) which, which he then did with totally irregular positioning. So he hadn't learned the actual fingering. Um, so he just played, but he was able to play it with his improvised fingering. So those cases do occur, but the ones that have been portrayed as parent manufactured, it's it's not really the case. Have you read Open by uh, Alex Agassi? Uh, I have, yeah. So, yeah. That's, a, so that's a parent-driven one, and I, at least it appears to be. I, I recommend that book. I, I was, uh, I'm not a big tennis fan. I'm a, somewhat of a tennis fan, and I was really uh, impressed and and inspired and touched by by that his story it gives you a an insight into the um psyche of a competitor he's very open about his failures and successes and fears and and dis- dislike of his father at times for yeah. pushing him relentlessly yeah no i agree it's a great book uh, now so so but whether it's the parent or the child, your point with Thirth Roger is that his his mother and, and I assume his father pushed him to diversify away from one thing. And Roger was happy to do that. Uh, you're implying that, uh, it, that really two things in the, in, are central to your book. One is head starts are overrated and specialization is overrated. And secondly, a stronger claim, I think, which is that they're not just overrated. They're less than helpful. The The diversity – that Federer had with soccer and other other sports uh, made him a better tennis player. And I should say, I think there are as many ways to attain elite performance as there are people. Um, so I think there are sometimes people become elites with suboptimal development. Um, and sometimes people with optimal development don't become elites. So I think there's no perfect path, but that, a huge body of evidence across different sports now shows that the typical path is an early sampling period where you do a large variety of sports, you gain a breadth of general skills, um, you learn about your own abilities, your own interests, and you delay specialization. Now, whether or not that 
Um, because I, I also make the argument that golf is a particularly bad model of most other things that people want to learn. Whether or not that early that trend holds for golf is unclear. I think there is a dearth of research on the best development in golf. So it is possible that early specialization in golf um, does work. I think the jury is out. But for most of the other sports that are more dynamic, uh, involve anticipatory skills where you're judging what other people are going to do, um, the early sampling delayed specialization is the pattern. And initially, I thought that was going to be purely a selection effect, that it was going to be um, just the better athletes could play more sports until later. So they did. And then I started as this, this question became more important in the sports world, started to see these studies where say German researchers would take soccer players matched for skill at a certain age, follow them longitudinally for seven years and see what they did or, or for several years and see what they did and who had improved more um, later on, what they would see is that the people who are diversifying their activities would actually end up improving more, even if they were sort of slightly behind um, at a certain point because of diversification. And I should make it clear, your book opens with the Tiger Roger story, but this is not a book about sports. It's a book about, you could say everything. Uh, it's about math. It's about chess. It's about music, art, decision-making, uh, career generally. So, uh we're opening with some sports conversation, but uh, your book is really, in many ways, it's it's a a warning not to generalize from golf, say, or chess. <laughs> and so, tell tell the story of the um, the chess family and uh, what you learn from that in the terms wicked and kind. So, this is the the Polger family is another famous story in. Um, in, in books that are concerned with the development of expertise, basically from childhood. And in this case, in individual named um, Laszlo Polger, uh, who uh, had studied a Hungarian man who, uh, whose, whose family basically, basically his entire family had been wiped out in the Holocaust. And he was determined to have a remarkable family and had studied the lives of people who went on to greatness, basically, and decided that he could manufacture greatness and that he would do so by experimenting with his own children. And he decided at the time... Um, kind of an in, ambig ambiguous moral strategy, but okay. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think that's that's fair, but that's that's a different discussion. I guess sure. the word experimental there's a little bit loaded, but go ahead. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> that's that's totally fair. Um I, maybe experiment isn't the, yeah. uh, the, I mean, I think his feeling was that he was just going to make them really good at something. So this, you know, was it an experiment or was he just, I don't know. But I mean, I guess everyone can do what they want with their own kids, but I do realize that is kind of a weird, um, way to frame it. Uh, so thanks for making that, <laughs> that interjection. But in, in any case, he wanted to see if he could make his kids really good at something. And beyond just making his kids good at something, the idea was to prove that you could do this with basically any kid in anything, right? Any kid and not just in chess. And so uh, in the early 70s, as he had his first, he had his first daughter in 1969, in the early 70s, chess was really, really important, right? It was sort of like a Cold War proxy, more or less. And so for a number of reasons, including that popularity um, and also the fact that his first daughter, Susan's might have shown a little bit of interest in a chessboard when she was very little. And also the fact that chess has um, 
a very clear rating system that that rates a player according to other players in the world so you can really track someone's progress in a very rigorous way. He decided to base the, well, now I don't want to call it an experiment, but the, the project yeah. on, <laughs> on chess and that he would specialize his daughter in um, very technical training in chess very, very early. And so when she was, he started training her hours a day um, and, you know, before the first year, like within eight months of training, she at four years old, she went to a smoky chess club in Budapest and with her legs dangling from the chair, uh, beat an adult man who stormed off. <laughs> and from there, she just got better and better and became the greatest female player in the world. I, I should say she also was uh, way a, a ahead of her peers in, in other areas like math and things like that. So she was rather exceptional in a number of areas. But uh, Susan Polger became the, the greatest female player in the world, qualified for the what was then called the Men's World Championships, but wasn't allowed to play. And the, the rules were eventually changed because of her achievements. And she had two sisters that um, were part of the project as well, one of whom went on to become uh, ranked at, at a certain point eighth in the world, which was the highest ranking a woman had, had ever attained. And the other became an international master, didn't quite make it to grandmaster status. But the point was, with this early approach of giving a head start in very highly technical training and very focused on chess training, uh, Laszlo Polgar showed that he could make uh, his daughters into world-class chess players. And for him, the goal was to show by extension that any kid could be made into a, a a champion in anything, essentially. And you haven't mentioned it, but the the claim in the books that you alluded to earlier is that if you just practice enough and specialize and focus, you can do anything at a, at a very high level. And the magical um, number is ten thousand hours, supposedly. That ten thousand hours of practice can can lead to greatness. And I assume the Polgers got more than ten thousand. It would have been a more – if it was an actual yeah. experiment, he should have made one of them a, a swimmer and one of them a chef. But uh, to get right. a little or he should have randomly selected some kids, which, which was his next plan. He had There was a, a, a wealthy individual who was ready to sort of back him adopting um, some kids because he's a kind of a brilliant guy, right? And his daughters showed some brilliance beyond even chess. So it wasn't exactly a random sample, but that's a separate, yeah, yeah. separate issue. So, so what's wrong with concluding that? Why, especially with chess, why is chess perhaps – uh, not the best uh, way to think about this. And you use the idea of wicked and kind. I really like that. Yeah, so so chess is um, an endeavor where early specialization is very important, right? And e even though my book talks about areas where we overvalue specialists and undervalue generalists, it is domain dependent. And chess is an area where it's important. Like if you haven't started technical training by the age of 12, your chance of ever reaching, I think, international master status, which is a step down from grandmaster status, it drops from like one in four to like one in 55 or something like that. You have to be studying patterns or so-called tactics, which are the short combinations of moves that give you an immediate advantage on the board. It's based on pattern recognition. And the reason why there's been this explosion of young chess masters, there's something like, I don't know, two dozen or something like that grandmasters ever under the age of like 17, something like that. And the oldest one is like my age now because this is a phenomenon that grew out of the availability of computer chess where at a much younger age you can study many, many, many more patterns. So Laszlo Polger 
gave his daughters a head start on this because he clipped 200,000 different little game reports and essentially allowed them to study patterns. Now you can do that on the computer. And so that's caused a lot more young grandmasters because this, this instinctive pattern recognition on the chessboard is so incredibly important. As Susan Polger said, tactics, which is, which is essentially recognizing patterns, recurring patterns, is 99% of, of chess, basically. And that pattern recognition... Um, so to, to go, you mentioned the kind and wicked environments. The way that chess works makes it what's called a kind learning environment. So these are terms uh, used by psychologist Robin Hogarth. And what a kind learning environment is, is one where patterns recur. Um, ideally, a situation is constrained. So a, a chess board with very rigid rules and, and a literal uh, board is very constrained. And importantly, Every time you do something, you get feedback that is totally obvious. All the information is available. The feedback is quick, and it is 100% accurate, right? And this is chess, and this is golf. You do something, all the information is available. You see the consequences. Um, the the consequences are completely uh, immediate and accurate, and you adjust accordingly. And in these kinds of kind learning environments, if you're cognitively engaged, you get better just by doing the activity. On the opposite end of the spectrum are wicked learning environments. And this is a spectrum from kind to wicked. Wicked learning environments, often some information is hidden. Um, even when it isn't, you, feedback may be delayed. It may be infrequent. It may be non-existent. And it may be partly accurate or inaccurate in many of the cases. So the most wicked learning environments will teach, will reinforce the wrong types of behavior. So one of the examples that Hogarth talks about is a famous uh, physician, who a famous diagnos diagnostician um, who became very prominent because he could accurately tell that someone was going to get typhoid like weeks before they had any symptoms whatsoever. And the way he would do that was by palpating their tongue with his hands. And over and over again, he would amazingly say this person is going to get typhoid before they had a single system and as one of his symptom. And it, it turned out, as one of his colleagues later said, he was a more prolific carrier of typhoid than typhoid Mary because he was, in fact, giving people typhoid by feeling around their tongues from one typhoid patient to another. Task, yeah. And so in that case, the, the feedback of his successes taught him the wrong lesson. Now, that's a very extreme case. Most learning environments are not that wicked, but most learning environments are not nearly as kind as chess and golf either. And the, most of the areas that most of us work in do not have just built-in rules and recurring patterns uh, that we can rely on or built-in feedback that is always immediate, um, automatically comes, is complete and fully accurate. So in that sense, things like golf and chess are poor models for extrapolating to most things people want to learn. And in fact, one of the reasons chess is so easy, uh, you know, relatively speaking, easy to automate is because it's such a kind learning environment. So this in huge store of data, very constrained situations, repeating patterns. So the, the kinder a learning environment is, the more amenable it is to both specialization and to being automated. I was going to add a few thoughts outside the scope of your book about that distinction because I think it's extremely important and powerful um, in our modern obsession with quantifying everything. In, a, in what you're calling a wicked environment, a lot of things that are important can't be quantified, I would argue. And so they get ignored. 
uh, which is extremely costly. I can't help but think about Hayek's Nobel Prize address, the pretense of knowledge. So you understand some of the relationships, perhaps, in a, in a wicked environment, but you can't understand all of them. You can't quantify all of them. You don't understand all the feedback loops. You don't understand the unintended consequences of action. And you're misled about what works and what doesn't work. And when I say that, and I mention my skepticism about uh, science in general applied to social phenomena, people say, you know, first of all, they say, well, that's, you know, you're anti-science. I'm not. I'm pro-good science. I'm anti-bad science. But the other, you know, area that I think people tend to, they tend to misjudge the effectiveness of of science because there are some kind learning environments where we make tremendous progress. So chess is an example. I think about baseball where people applied statistics and analysis. Bill James was the pioneer of this in his, and he, when I asked him on Econ Talk if he felt we had pretty much figured everything out, he said, oh my gosh, no, the, the number of things we don't understand are, are thousandfold more than what we do understand. Hope I'm getting that ratio right. It was a figure of speech. Uh, it was not a precise measure, but the point is that baseball is a really kind environment. You, you can yeah. get really close to what the value of a walk is. And if you don't pay attention to walks and then you realize they matter, you, you get a better understanding. I, I think our understanding of the economy isn't like baseball, and we want it to be. You, you brought up a couple of great points there. And going to Bill James, one of the one of, sort of three three great points I want to glance off really quickly that you brought up with Bill James. I think one of the reasons that it's very clear to people who work in sports analytics that there has been a much greater impact of analytics in baseball than in, say, soccer is because of the way baseball works with these discrete outcomes and one-on-one -on -one interactions and all this stuff you can measure. So it's much kinder than even other sports, yeah, which point. are still kind in the spectrum of the world. Um, and and what Robin Hogarth, so he called, when you, you talk about the economy, he said, you know, I differentiate golf and tennis where tennis is more dynamic and involves, you know, sometimes teammates, but also human interactions and things like that. I'm anticipating what the other person is doing, but it's still on the kind end of the spectrum uh, compared to most activities. Whereas Hogarth said, what you're doing in the wider world is playing Martian tennis, where you can see that some people are playing a game, but nobody's told you what the rules are. You have to deduce them by yourself, and they can change at any moment without notice. And that's that's what we're usually faced. And I think that shows up, this, this kind to wicked spectrum shows up in our ideas about things that we can easily automate or apply analytics to. So if you look at chess, the like the, the chess app on the free chess app on your iPhone can beat Kerry Kasparov now, right? It doesn't take a so-called supercomputer anymore. So we've made exponential progress in chess, absolutely. In a, in a very constrained but but not you know but slightly less predictable predictable area of driving like with with self driving cars made huge progress but there's still some serious challenges even though that's an area that's governed by repeating behaviors and regulations and all those things so that's kind of the middle of the spectrum then you go over to something like cancer research where IBM's Watson has been such a disaster that that AI researchers I talked to were worried that it would taint the reputation of AI in healthcare because it had so underperformed. And as one of the oncologists I talked to told me, you know, where, where Watson won Jeopardy, said the difference between Jeopardy and cancer research is we know all the answers to Jeopardy. And so I think I like to think of that spectrum from, from chess to self-driving cars to the real 
open-ended questions that don't have these recurring patterns and that um, you have to find ways to learn other than just doing the activity and, and expecting automatic feedback. So let's get practical for a minute. A, a lot of listeners to Econ Talk are in their 20s and 30s. Some of you out there are in your first career, your first job, your first part of your career. Um, maybe you like it. Maybe you love it. Maybe you don't. And you're worried that if you quit, you're going to fall behind. And one of the lessons of this book, I hope it's correct, Evan, but it is, I think, one of the lessons is that quitting is okay. And I think we're often afraid uh, I know I was, you know, felt this at various times in my career that, you know, if, if I step off this treadmill or this escalator or this get out of the elevator, get off the elevator at the third floor before I get to the higher floors, I'm going to have to use the stairs the rest of the way and I'll never catch up. So what do we know? You know, it's one thing to say Roger Federer got a late start in tennis. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not I'm probably not a lot like Roger Federer. <laughs> so for an average person who's not extraordinary, what, are the, what do we know about our ability to, to quote, catch up uh, or to make up lost ground or to just thrive? You know, you know we don't need to be at the top. You just thrive right. would be great. Right. I, I think there are a couple different different ways to approach that. So if we look at some of the sort of concrete evidence, let's say of like Head Start type programs in, in academics, one of the things that I think is now clear um, based on research that's gathered up about, you know, looked at now 70 different programs that try to give kids uh, a, a jump on, on academics is there are some good social outcomes, but there's also what's called a ubiquitous fade out effect of their actual academic skills. And one of the reasons that actually happens is because the easiest way to give someone an apparent head start is to teach them so-called closed skills, like basically just procedures for doing something that work really well. And the problem Actually, is on tests. <laughs> right. And and the problem is everyone's going to learn that stuff anyway. And, and you can't, you're no good at applying it to new situations. So it's not that they get worse. It's just that everyone else catches up and you've learned these very narrowly constrained skills. So, so there's that. In fact, I, I would say, I don't want to get too far off topic here, but I thought one of the coolest studies um, in the book and most surprising to me was the one at the U S air force Academy where, um, the Air Force Academy students come in and they have to take a certain sequence of math courses and they are randomized to professors and then they are re-randomized to the next class and re-randomized again. And they all have to take the same test and it's graded by multiple professors and standardized and all this stuff. And what the study found was that the professors in Calculus One who teach the most narrow skill set have the students who do the best on their test and it systematically undermines them in future classes. So they underperform going forward because what you actually want to do is teach them how to connect concepts and this much sort of broader knowledge that makes them frustrated and may make them not do as well on the test, but it sets them up for future learning. And that, that study is just amazing. So it's just one example of where the kids who rate their professors really highly because they did well in their class contemporaneously because they were given the skills they needed right now for the test are systematically undermined and underperform in future classes. Um, so it was interesting to see that the teachers who were rated the best by students were the ones who undermined those students for their future learning. So that's one example of of um, getting what appears to be a head start but undermines future development. And I think that's sort of a decent analogy for other areas of life. And this isn't to say that people shouldn't specialize at all. I think one of the, if I had to give a theme of this book, 
it's not that specialization is bad. It's that society has overvalued specialists and undervalued generalists and overvalued the early specialization pathway and undervalued the sampling period and delayed specialization pathway. And I think that shows up more broadly in other areas of work. So in one part of the book, I, I discuss the match quality. You know, this is the, the degree of fit between a person's abilities and their interests and the work that they do. And one of the things that shows up in that kind of research is that people get information signals from trying certain work. And if they, they learn about themselves, they learn how good they are at it, they learn how much they like it. And when they use that information and quit, they tend to have faster growth rates in whatever they're doing next because they've learned something about themselves. And that's maybe they learned that they weren't good at what they were doing before, they're better at something else, or they're more interested in something else, or there are better opportunities elsewhere. Um, but maybe paradoxically, if we think about the received wisdom, the quitters end up as the faster growers um, and also often happier, right? This, there's a, a Freakonomics um, so uh, Freakonomics, Freakonomics used to have this Freakonomics experiments homepage uh, that I discussed in the book where um, thousands of people, uh, Stephen Levitt, the, the, the so-called Freakonomics economist, leveraged his readership to get thousands of people to flip a digital coin to make important life decisions. And those could be from getting a tattoo to having a kid to changing jobs, right? Changing jobs was the most common one. And in, nobody had to change jobs if they flipped, um, if they, you know, flipped heads or, but they could. And it turned out there was a causal effect of the digital coin flip on the decision people actually made. And the people who followed the coin flip and changed jobs were happier down the line when he checked back in with them than those who had gotten the flip that said they should stick with their job and had done that. So there's a causal relationship of changing um, based on the coin flip and to happiness. So I think there was, I saw Tyler Cowen talked a little bit about this study and said, uh, basically his advice was, if we're thinking about quitting, maybe we should. I think that was his exact quote. Yeah, I don't really like that for a bunch of reasons. You know, one of which is, oh boy, the selection issue there of who chooses to come to the page, who chooses to flip, what they're hit, you know, if you you'd really want a lot more information uh, but it That's does, true, but you should look at, at, at his analysis where he tries to establish causality between the coin flip and the subsequent outcome. So there's definitely selection for who comes to the page, but but I would highly recommend diving into the methodology of that study, too, if you're but very skeptical. I will, but it's more than just who comes to the page. It's who thinks it's a good idea to flip a coin to make a life decision. Some people are in – you can imagine somebody who's in desperate anxiety because they can't decide what to do, somebody who finds it amusing. I mean, there's just such an enormous range of emotional – Things there, but to give the study its due, uh, it does remind me a little bit of the placebo effect. It's like if I can convince myself that I've done this in a certain particular way, I'll I'll be happier. Uh, it's, it's like a form of self um, self therapy, maybe. I, I don't know. Maybe I, I, I do want to add. Um, but you know, there's other there's other work I discussed in there too that shows things like teacher turnover, which is this hor you know horrible denigrated thing among school systems. Shows that when teachers move, they actually perform better. And so, you know, we don't like teacher turnover because it's an administrative headache. But in fact, I think the the evidence is that those teachers are responding to match quality information, finding a better fit for themselves, and it's not based on moving to schools with better students. And they actually do a better job of boosting student performance after they move. So I think we should be careful about 
constraining those kinds of movements. And, and you know, you, you tell me, but I think we, we want low friction in that sort of talent market, basically. And that's not really what we have. Oh, I, I agree. And I, I also think, to disagree a little bit with what I said a minute ago, I think change is really powerful. Just change, period. I think, uh, you know, when I moved and came to George Mason, my productivity jumped dramatically for a hundred reasons. But part of it was just that I was in a different place. Um, I remember when when key people uh, left institutions I worked in, I thought, oh my gosh, that's going to be such a blow. And other people stepped up and other people, new people came in who were just, you know, gave people things to think about that they hadn't thought about before. So, uh, you know, when people ask me, should I take this job? Uh, one of the things I always ask is, you know, do you feel like you're in a rut? And a rut can be a really comfortable place. You know, it's mm-hmm. anything about it more like a hammock. Uh, I remember a friend of mine who asked me for uh, for like advice that. on this, and and his for, he was in an incredible job. It was paid well, very low expectations, lots of leisure on the job, outside the job, and he was very happy. It was very satisfying. It was a good job, and he did it well. And uh, he had a new opportunity that came into his life that was much harder. Uh, it wasn't going to pay a lot more in real terms after cost of living changes were taken into account. And uh, I just asked him if he felt you know, that challenged in his current job? Did he feel alive? Did Was it was it exil- ever exhilarating? And the answer was no. And he, I didn't tell him what to do, but I, you know, encouraged him to consider the second, the new job he took it. And I understand it's a data point of one, but um, sample of one, but, but, you know, he's, his life changed in all kinds of mostly good ways. Um, and so I think change, I wouldn't tell people every five years you should change. You know, it's a little bit like term limits. We understand why term limits in politics might be good. It just it seems absurd to say that you know after you've stayed in Congress a certain number of years you should quit after you've learned so much and you, you're better perhaps at the job. But we understand that sometimes just leaving is 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 a good thing. People get into a rut. They get into uh, expectations fall. It gets harder and harder to fire people. And you know that. And so you don't work as hard. And so, I don't know, I think there's a lot to be said for just changing now and then. Um, so I'm, I'm a big fan of that. But That's, wait, 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 that, that's yeah, some great points. Sorry, can I just, because yeah, I think those, sure. are, those are fantastic points um, that, that go to a couple of things. The idea that just the change might be useful. And it, it first, I, I love that hammock. I'm totally going to use that and I'll attribute it to you. <laughs> that, that people, we say people get into a rut when really what they're doing more often, like a rut saying, you know, maybe they can't produce anything. No, it's they're getting into a hammock, which is that they're producing the same stuff, basically. They're not getting off that plateau because it's comfortable. And it's pleasant. And, and it's it's like, it's not like uh, Charlie Chaplin in Modern Times tightening the same rate that over and over again. That's a rut. It, it, it really reminds me of when I used to, you know, for my last book, when I was looking through literature on speed typing, actually. So what turns out, what most people do is we get to a certain speed of typing that's like fast enough and there's nothing pushing us beyond that and we settle into it. When in fact, you could get much, much faster. But what you have to do is basically set a metronome at a little bit faster than you go now, <laughs> ignore the mistakes, just go at that speed uh-huh. and you take it up little by little and you can like double your typing speed. But that's not our natural orientation, right? Yeah. It's like it's to get to a certain place and then sit in the hammock. And and I, I gosh, now I'm mad I didn't use that hammock in my book. But <laughs> um, but it reminds me of one of my favorite. You know, I think this might be related. One of my favorite phrases that stuck in my head in the book was from 
um, Herminia Ibarra, uh, professor of organizational behavior, which is we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And I think there's a huge industry of like self-help and personality tests that either explicitly or implicitly want to convince us that we can just take that test or introspect and know what's best for ourselves. When in fact, our insight into ourselves and the world is constrained by our roster of experiences. And so the only way to find out what else is out there and what might fit better is to try some stuff. And while experimentation seems like it might be a waste of time um, or it might be scary, that some of the people I think I write about in the book end up sort of in fact, being generalists just because what they were trying to do is zigzag until they could kind of triangulate the best spot for themselves. And they end up having a lot of different experiences because that's how they get to know themselves and their skills. It wasn't that they were just trying to be broad, but that this changing things, this experimentation really teaches you about who you are in practice because we're not as good at introspecting that um, as we think. And it, it makes me wonder if some, I was just reading some research by LinkedIn's chief economist that showed one of the main predictors other than going to a, uh, a top five MBA program, whether that was because of the school or the student selection, you know, who knows, but um, of becoming an executive when they looked at a half million members was the number of different job functions that someone had worked across in an industry. And I wonder, you know, maybe that's because I think the chief economist suggests it's probably because those people get a well-rounded view of the industry, which could be, but but I also wonder if some of that is they're going through this form of personal experimentation where they learn what's possible, they learn what they're good at and other interests, and maybe they are better able to find a place where they fit. And, and I think it's, we have to realize we can't just do that without experimenting. We can't just, you know, introspect everything about ourselves. Like that would, that would seem crazy when we were younger to think that we can just like sit around and introspect and know everything about ourselves without trying things. That is so deep. I mean, it's, it's, it seems obvious, but one of the things that, you know, we haven't talked about is Credible uh, fear of change, and Eric Hoffer, who's uh, wrote a beautiful little book called the, I think it's called the Ordeal of Change. I recommend it. It's about mm. how, just how hard it is. In his case, he talked. He was a it's an amazing story. He's a, I think he was blind till he was I don't know an adolescent or a teenager. He couldn't read. I know for sure. And at some point, he has access to books, and he just he has very little formal education, and he he just becomes a voracious reader, but a good chunk of his life, he's a, or at least part of his life, he's a, um, he's a farm worker and he's picking some farm, some, he's a migrant farm worker. He has to move from picking like peas to something else. He talks about how scary it was because he's afraid he wasn't going to be good at this, this different kind of vegetable. And that, that's a trivial example, but in the books, no, about, that's an awesome example. Well, the book's about Every aspect of change, not just change in vegetables, but um, change is scary. And most of the time, that hammock is attractive, not just because it's fairly pleasant to rock back and forth in it. You don't you worry that there's not that other one is going to be like a really hard chair you can't ever get comfortable in. Yeah. And so I think it's very difficult for people to change. And and one of the themes of your book, which I love, and you're emphasizing now, is this idea that. It's not just that, oh, you might like this more. You need to try a lot of stuff. You can't figure it out. You need to explore stuff unless you're, you know, some of us are lucky or not lucky. I don't know what the what the right word is and, and find something they love early on. Yep. And others, quote, flounder, but it's it's not, that's, that's a feature, not a bug. Absolutely. And, and I think that, that get, and, and again, there are a million 
there's no single pathway that's right for everyone. Some people will find something early on that's that's a great fit for them, and that's great. Um, but I think uh, you know it, it reminds me of of a psychological finding I mentioned in the book called the end of history illusion. That's this idea that we all recognize that we have changed a lot in the past, but think that we won't change so much in the future. So it leads to some really funny findings, right? Like if you ask people how much they would pay to see their current favorite band 10 years from now, the average answer is $129. But if you ask how much they would pay to see today, their favorite band from 10 years ago, the answer is $80. (laughs) Right. Because we, we really underestimate how much we change. And that has to that's including personality traits. Right, The correlation for an individual personality trait from teen years to middle age is usually like in the point two. You know, so it's point two, point three. So it's it's low to moderate. So there are certainly traces of who you were um, that are still distinguishable. But you're a very different person. And we underestimate that change. And I think between that and our inability to predict the world we're going to live in, we're basically facing this task of. Um, trying to decide how to behave for a future you who you don't yet know in a world you can't yet conceive. And I think the idea that most of us can do that really well, uh, like a priori, you know, without trying some things is just, um, is, is a, a very limiting notion, basically. And the idea that you can get better at it by sitting in your armchair and pondering it or reading a book that's going to help you figure it out is probably an, a delusion, It's really really an important point. Um, You have a great line in there. I can't remember Cher's or one of your people you you write about, but talking about the idea of flirting with your possible self because you don't know who you're going to be and you want to just kind of hang out for a little bit, go on a date, imagine it, try it, do a little of it, and 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 trial and error is just as a general point. It's it's grossly under underrated. That's right, and that's because we think of if if there is there's so much lip service to the error part, but who really supports that? Right. In practice, say, oh, you know, failure is so important. But I don't see anyone's boss being like, yeah, this was an important failure for you. Um, or at least that's never happened to me. Right. So we give the lip service to it. But but what about in, in practice? And, and you mentioned dating, which I especially like because I like to think of careers that way. Right. Where yeah. we in, we incentivize people to get married to their high school sweetheart, which, you know, if we thought about careers the way we think about dating, nobody would settle down that quickly or, or very few few people would settle down that quickly. Right. And it might seem like a great idea to marry your high school sweetheart. I thought it was a great idea at the time, but having more experience in the world, in retrospect, it looks like a really bad idea. Um, and and yeah, so I think that's a that's an important thing to keep in mind. And before we go on, I, w- I want to move on to a couple of different things, but I, when you mentioned this issue about learning uh, and and the importance of what I, what I understand as narrow techniques that work for you know one particular thing but aren't as generalizable, so that at the time they're frustrating. I, I want to share my favorite course evaluation when I used to teach in the classroom. So I, I got a one from this student on a scale of out one of, to five. Of, okay. Five was good, one was bad. <laughs> and I, I, one's really demoralizing. And so I, I look at it. What does the student say? This course was very unfair. Professor Roberts expected us to apply the material to things we had never seen before. <laughs> Right, that's like right. That's so, the whole trick of yeah, learning. Is no, what you want. it is. And, but but I do think, and I, I want to use that as a segue to to the next topic, which is our ability. And you write about this a lot. And it's it's complicated. Our ability to use analogies and patterns, not in a chess world, not in the kind world of chess, but in the wicked world of of complex problems, 
and how powerful that is, but also how limiting it, it can be. And I, I want to tell you a story, and then I'll let you use the story as a way to, to riff on your um, the ways you write about this in the book. I met a CEO once of a very large company. The company had gone bankrupt, and this was, of course, humiliating to this person. And I don't know why he confided in me. I didn't know him well. I think it was the first time I'd ever met him. I was in my office. I was working in the business school. And uh, he was almost talking out loud to himself, and he He'd gone to Harvard, one of those top five MBA programs, which leads to a lot of, of CEOs. And he, um, he said, I made, a, I made a mistake when he's talking about why they went back. I didn't ask him why he went back. He just sort of free associating. He said, I made a mistake. He said, I applied the wrong case. And he told me what the cases were. He thought it was going to be like this case, but it turned out to be like this other one. And it came and bit him in the rear end and the company went bankrupt. And I thought, what an extraordinary uh, illustration of the challenge of the case study approach. But in a way, that's kind of like life. We see things yeah. and we say, oh, that's like. And so I think, oh, I'll use that tool to solve this problem. Turns out right. it's the wrong tool. Right. Right. And I think that um, is really common among executives or among all decision makers, right? And and in many cases, I think, so I, I write, I have a chapter about analogical thinking, which I think what you're referring to. Yeah. And um, in many cases, that the case like that executive where he thinks of, you know, maybe the most dramatic example or the one that on the surface is the most similar and that's what he uses as a model of the problem he has to solve. In many cases, that actually does work for us in a kind world, right? If we are, you, you know, I fixed my drain in one apartment when, uh, a, you know, somewhat similar drain gets clogged in another place, like I'm going to use the same techniques and that um, or because you have a million interactions every day where they're not exactly the same but an analogy to a pretty similar situation works really, really well. And that's kind of how we get through life. Um, and we don't really have a problem with that. The, the tricky part is when we use that same sort of instinct to uh, default to like a, the single, you know, either most dramatic or just most surface similar um, analogy when the problems are much more complex. And I think this can end up leading to a really constrained view, you know, or what, what Daniel Kahneman, a name is first, he called the inside view, basically, where you have your problem and you get obsessed with kind of the particular details of your problem. If you use an analogy, it's going to be like a single analogy and you're going to try to like match up uh, details of those problems and, and similarities. And essentially, you end up having this very narrow view of your own problem. And if you use any analogies at all, it'll probably be a single one. And um, what you want to do instead is to get out of that that mindset where you really ha you picked the first analogy that came to mind, irrespective of whether it's useful or not. Um, and probably because it has some what I call surface similarities, basically. Um, what you want to do is create a so-called reference class of analogies. You want to generate a whole bunch of analogies and then think about what usually happens on the broad scale instead of focusing on the particular details. So Kahneman tells a personal story about this where he and a group were charged with creating a decision-making curriculum for a school system. And they had a year of meetings and 
Incredible at the story. end of that, they they decided, um, okay, let's have a meeting to talk about how much longer we think it's going to take for us to finish this curriculum. And they take votes and everyone votes between a year and two years from now. So the whole entire range is like one to two years of guesses. And then Kahneman realizes there's a guy named Seymour who has seen this process play out with a whole bunch of other teams. And he asks Seymour, who, who again, Seymour had just predicted no more than two years, like five minutes ago. And now he asks Seymour, so how did it work with these, with these other teams? And Seymour says, gosh, you know, I, I never really thought about that, but come to think of it, um, none of them made it in less than seven years and a lot of them never finished. And so the group says, wow, well, and then they discuss their unique personalities and their unique assets and say, well, that won't be us. Like, and they stick with their one to two years prediction. Eight years later, um, they finish. Kahneman's not even on the team or living in the country anymore. And the school system doesn't want the curriculum anymore, right? So in, instead of focusing on their unique assets and how skilled they were or even any single analogy, what they should have done is forget about all those little details, you, you know, forget about their un, what they think their unique skills are and gather as many previous cases as they possibly can because while those aren't exactly the same, most events aren't completely unique. And this, this, what's called this reference class forecasting forces you in a way to think a little bit like a statistician where you look at what normally happens instead of getting distracted by all the sort of little details of your particular case. And one of the interesting findings in this chapter to me was that analogical thinking can be very powerful for problem solving. Um, but if you use a, the single analogy, it's not good at all. Basically, you have to use a bunch of analogies. You have to generate this whole reference class of analogies and see what what usually happens. Whether you're trying to predict what's going to happen with your group or trying to come up with a novel solution for a problem, you want to come up with a whole bunch of analogies. And if you're if you're trying to generate ideas, having more analogies causes you know leads you to generate more ideas for a problem. Or if you're trying to predict how your situation is going to unfold, you want more analogies and to try to see what usually happens. But our instinct is very strongly to focus on the internal details of a problem, and if anything, to use a single analogy. And and unfortunately, that basically is the exact wrong way to go about it. Whether you're trying to generate ideas um, or trying to to predict what's coming. The other part of it, which I, I want to get your thoughts on, and I don't think you talk about this in the book explicitly, although it's, I think, under the surface. It's not just analogies. I, I like the idea of thinking, as you talk about in the book, of tools. And, you know, it's a classic line I've said here before, and I think it's deep, even though it's a cliche. If you, if you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I think after a while, we forget that we have a hammer. Uh, so one of the problems is is that we like um, – we're used to having the hammer. It's what we've got. But we really like swinging the hammer too after a while. And so it's not just it's what you're used to or you, you pick this analogy. It's that you get into this habit of using the same analogy over and over because it served you very well. And as you say, it often does. I mean often – a particular analogy in the right kind of setting or the right kind of tool in the right kind of setting is is extraordinary. And it just um, – I mean, just take a trivial, stupid example. Uh, you know, as an economist, I always like to say incentives matter. So uh, uh, the coach of Villanova's basketball team just – I just read this morning. I don't know if it's true, but allegedly turned down an enormous offer to leave Villanova and go to UCLA. Well, that's irrational. 
would would say someone who doesn't understand the world or who only uses the hammer of financial incentives doesn't understand the role of non-monetary factors or just other cultural habits or fear of the different or loves villain who knows what the reason is but but an economist's first thought might be oh he'll take that job because it's so much higher salary and and that's just a, a trivial example of where a tool could lead you astray but this idea that we become um attached to our tools in an emotional almost needy way is illustrated your book and, and what to me this is just an unforgettable extraordinary example uh, of firefighters who die uh, because they get overtaken by a fire. Just talk about that. So these are wilderness firefighters, particularly so-called hot shots and, and smoke jumpers who go into forest fires, either hike in or parachute in. Um, and they have to dig trenches usually um, and, and clear fuel uh, to try to contain forest fires. And an unusual, uh, a sociologist named Carl White made an unusual finding when he looked at, you know, th- these are incredibly skilled performers, but once in a while there's a disaster and a bunch of them die when something unexpected happens. And what he noticed over and over again in those scenarios was that they would die with their tools, with, you know, incre- more than a hundred pounds, like axes and things like that heavy tools while they were trying to run away from a fire. And on brief occasions, one of them would drop their tools and would survive because they would be able to run effectively away from the fire. And you see in testimony of those survivors, they'll say, you know, the, the fire was closing on me and I decided I had to put down my axe. And I thought, man, I'm crazy. I can't believe I'm letting go of my axe. So they'll like look for a place to to dig a hole really quick and bury the axe to protect it. Meanwhile, they're, they're, the axe has no use anymore. All they can do is flee from the fire for their lives. And most of them never drop those tools, even when they're ordered to. They, they die with the tools still on their back, encumbering their running when they could have gotten away if they had dropped the tools. And what Wyke saw this as an allegory for that kind of when uh, when all you have is a hammer problem, where the tools become so central to the professional identity of the practitioner and so bound up with their feeling of competence that they essentially no longer really realize that they're separate from themselves or their practice than their own arms are, basically. And so the thought of dropping those tools never even really occurs to them as a way to adapt to an unfamiliar problem, even though it's the one thing that would save their life. So their bodies are found still with with their tools. And he used that as an allegory to talk about this in different disciplines where uh, whether it's a real physical tool or just some common procedure, for example, uh, that people get so attached to that they don't even really realize it's something that they can drop or can change. And that's fine as long as they face the same situation over and over. But when they face an unfamiliar situation or, um, you know, Russ, like your student said, it's, it's, it's unfair because you expect them to apply the material to a new situation. Well, that's kind of life, isn't it? Sometimes it's unfair and you have to apply the material to a new situation. They don't realize that they can use these tools in any different way or drop them entirely. And so in all these domains that Wyke studied, like in, um, uh, air, you know, in, in commercial airplane accidents, 
the vast majority of the time, the problem is that when it when all the signals about a situation show that the crew is in a unique facing a unique problem, they stick in, to their familiar procedures anyway and to their initial plan until it's way too late. And so there's this this lack of ability to realize that you can deviate. You're almost like stuck in this pattern. You know, you're, you're in your procedural hammock, basically, to, to use some of your terminology, no, it's, and it's, it's really hard to get out of it. It's such a deep thing, actually. I, I didn't appreciate it enough when I was reading the book, and you're making me realize it now. The, the emphasis on procedure, which is really important usually, right, because it prevents emotional mistakes. Mm-hmm. It prevents um, uh, spontaneity that in life or death situations is extremely risky, uh, becomes the thing that kills you. Those tools which save your life become the thing that, that, that costs you your life. And, you know, you talk a lot in the book about how many solutions to problems come from the non-specialists uh, and how often that fresh way of looking at things, the generalist approach rather than the specialist approach, it's, you know, it's almost, it almost doesn't pass the sniff test. Like, how could a non-chemist Solve a chemistry problem. It's impossible. And the reason is the chemistry people are just hammering that nail over and over and over again, whatever it is. And somebody comes and says, let's try a screwdriver. You know, that's not a nail. (laughs) You're doing the wrong, you're doing the wrong thing. But it comes out most vividly in the book uh, with the NASA example. Here are these engineers. We're talking, you talk at length about the challenge or tragedy. Here are these engineers who, they're so smart and they understand so much. But they are paralyzed when it doesn't fit into the procedure. That's right, and, and not just the challengers. I mean, in the in the challenger case, they had these incredible procedures that had worked really, really well. I mean, they did an amazing job, um, and you know, doing something that's from, inconceivable. Absolutely, <laughs> sending people absolutely. out to space for catching them when they come absolutely. back. Um, you know, and and until the challenger, I think, had never lost. Um, had never lost anyone in in space, you know, or in or returning from space. I guess the Challenger didn't. Well, anyway, they had they had had an accident on the launch pad before. Yeah. Um, and what happened in that case was they had an unfamiliar situation in terms of the temperature they were going to have at yeah, launch. About the Challenger now. Yeah, about the Challenger. And you know, to to make a long story short, um, there were there was a small number of engineers who recognized that they were in an unfamiliar situation. And raised their voices and and said we might have a problem here. One engineer in particular, and he was asked to quantify the problem. Right, NASA's the the organization that that had uh, they had this mantra hanging on um, their on the mission room that was um, in God we trust, all others bring data. Right, so I think that sort of set the tone that if you didn't have, and you could see this in. In after the accident, in transcripts of testimony from engineers, they would say things like, um, "If I didn't have data, you know, I didn't have a right to have an opinion." Basically, and I understand that because you want a rigorous data. But generally, culture. it's a good rule. <laughs> exactly. At the same time, in this particular case, they did not have the data they needed to make the decision, and so when some of when this particular engineer argued for a last-second delay of the launch, he was asked to make the quantitative case. 
Um, you know, why does he think the O-rings are going to fail in this temperature? Show the data points. And the fact was that they didn't have the right data points. His data was primarily based on two photographs that showed at different temperatures that some burning hot gas had gotten past a seal. And at the colder temperature, it looked much worse than at the warmer temperature. But those, one of the temperatures was one of the warmest launches they had ever done, and one of them was the coldest launch they had ever done. And so it spanned almost their entire range of temperatures they'd launched at. And his bosses basically looked at this like, well, you have one really warm one and one really cold one. So that's no correlation. And what he was saying was, I think this qualitative data, these pictures are, are telling a story. And that was rejected. It was essentially deemed inadmissible evidence because it wasn't a quantitative story. And their procedure called for strict quantitative criteria. It was an anecdote, actually. The equivalent right. of an anecdote. That's right. It was an anecdote and it was a hunch. Um, and, and, you know, later when NASA managers testified in front of the Rogers Commission that was investigating this, uh, Richard Feynman, they, they made this argument that the, the engineers, they didn't have a good quantitative case. And Feynman said, when you don't have data, you have to use reason. And they were giving you reasons. And he gives, he goes on this sort of explanation of the data wasn't there. So you have to find another way to make decisions and not just stick to like, well, our, our process says you either have the data or you can't change the decision. It's you have to recognize that you're outside of the normal bounds and say, in that case, we need to apply different criteria. And they didn't. So in this case, like the hotshots, their tools weren't axes um, and hammers. Their tool were these these procedures that called for very specific types of quantitative data that they were not willing to drop, even though the data that was required to really make the decision didn't exist, and yet they still had to make a decision. So they just continued um, with the launch, and, and we know what happened. And, and in fact, their next disaster, the, the Columbia explosion, was so culturally similar that the investigation committee deemed NASA not a learning organization because they had not learned from the Challenger launch. So in that case, there were, again, a small number of engineers who were concerned that part of Columbia had been damaged and asked the Department of Defense for high-res photos of a portion of the shuttle they thought were damaged. And this was outside the normal procedure. Again, this, this hallowed procedure that's kind of the tools for NASA decision-making. And their superiors found out, went to the Department of Defense and apologized for contact outside of normal channels and said it wouldn't happen again. And then the shuttle exploded. So in both cases, it was this strict adherence to a procedure that works really well when they're in the bounds of um, their experience and that was disastrous when the information they needed to make a decision was no longer available and the quantitative case couldn't be made. I can't help but wonder if on virtually every launch there were people who said, wait a minute. And most of the time when they were ignored, it turned out okay. You know, I often, after many terrorist attacks, there's always the reports yeah. that we had yeah. some information if we'd only or, or a better example would be pearl harbor you know there there in an in a world of infinite time infinite resources uh pearl harbor shouldn't have been a surprise you know of the zillions of telegrams that were intercepted at the time and yeah. dec decrypted there was some suggestion that and so of course afterwards there are people who said we should have been aware of this risk do you think that's the case in this in this in this NASA culture story? I mean, it's a it's an incredibly powerful story, even if it's not a hundred percent as as uh, straightforward as as it sounds. It's still a very useful um, thing to to keep in mind about relentlessly using tools all the time. But uh, do you think there are other times when people raised 
those issues and just got ignored and it turned out okay. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you nailed that, right? So one of the guys I spent a lot of time interviewing um, for that chapter was Alan McDonald, who was the head of the rocket booster program for NASA's contractor, um, Morton Thiokol. And so he was on the famous conference call where they decided to, to go ahead with the launch. And, and um, one of the things he said was, you know, if we had effectively delayed the launch – Without the the proper quantitative data, um, the feeling probably would have been it would have been fine. We should have gone ahead. The people who stopped it are, are chicken littles, to use his language, uh, and it, it wouldn't have been deemed like oh that was a great decision, right? Because we don't know the counterfactuals, and the the challenger again that I think that was probably more unique because the the temperature was so outside of their normal bounds um, that that specific uh, instance might not have been the same, but I'm sure at a lesser sort of magnitude, those things were happening constantly, probably. And that's why in that chapter, I had a really, I had to interview a million times. In that chapter, I also talk about a, a commander of pararescue jumpers in the Air Force. And when he has to make decisions in Afghanistan with with very, very little information. So there's an explosion in a, in a caravan and his uh, pararescue men have to go and essentially rescue an unknown number of, of injured soldiers. They don't know what situation they're getting into. And it turns out that he, he makes sort of a very difficult decision that turns out really well and everyone survives. But he was so adamant that I better include a quote where he says, maybe it was luck. That decision could have turned out differently. And then even if I used the right procedure, it would be a bad decision because I would have had to go explain it to 10 families. Um, and so I think... That was an important thing to include because, you know, even in something as simple as like blackjack, if you play perfectly, you win, you know, whatever, dozens of more hands in a thousand or something like that if you play perfectly. And we don't get that many takes in most of the things we do. So I think we have to be really conscious of the fact that a good outcome doesn't always mean um, a, that we used a good process and vice versa. And and I think it's really it's really difficult. I, I'm really curious what would have happened if they had not launched Challenger, because I think internally there would have been a lot of feeling of that that people were being overly cautious. And we're talking about the space program, right? Like I use this quote where engineer Mary Schaefer, former NASA engineer, said, "Perfect safety is for people who don't have the balls to live in the real world," right? And that kind of became a famous quote because you can't have perfect safety. You have to take some risk. And so what that chapter I think is about is sort of trying to calibrate to minimize two different types of errors. The, the errors of, of mindless conformity, where you follow the procedure and use the tools no matter what, and balance that with errors of reckless deviance, where you're never following procedures and always sort of ad-libbing and improvising. And, and what I tried to get at that chapter was how do we try to diversify the tools of an organization so that we, we strike a balance between those errors of deviation and errors of conformity. I'm just thinking of uh, Nassim Taleb, who's taught me that um, expected value is the wrong way to think about rational decision-making. And often, uh, and, and you don't want to just look at the odds of a bad outcome. You want to look at what what would be the consequence of that bad outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really hard for us to do. We often just say, well, it's unlikely. but yeah. <laughs> So I don't have to worry about it. But if it's unlikely and it means ruin, 
you want to stay really far away from that. You want to be, as he says, anti-fragile. And I, I, it's a fascinating, I think, part of, of human experience that we're not really – we struggle to deal with uncertainty. I, you know, when I talk with people about this, they'll say things like, you know, that was a bad decision. Uh, and their reason for thinking is because it didn't turn out well. Right. And that's not a very good – that's a bad way to think about the feedback between your choices and your outcomes. And, you know, I don't want to overstate – I said earlier the, the importance of change and the power of change. And, you know, someone listening might say, oh, great, I'm going to quit my job tomorrow. And it might turn <laughs> out really badly. And, yeah. and, and you might decide that I gave really bad advice. And in a way, you have to quit your job 10 times. <laughs> Yeah, and we don't right. live long enough. We don't live right. long enough. To, we, you really have to quit your job. With, like it's like blackjack. You have to quit your job a thousand times so that the twelve extra right. times that you win uh, outweigh the the losses to make it a, a valuable thing. And I, I just think these kind of you know that story. I'm not going to go into the details, but it's so powerful in the book of that Afghanistan commander. It's you realize how. Well, one thing you realize is that. You have a really easy life <laughs> and the decisions that you make that are, you know, you're worried about are trivial compared to what he had to deal with. It's just, um, it's hard to figure it out. When I was interviewing him, he, you know, he's a very stoic guy and he like at that, when he talked about delivering this decision, essentially a major part of his decision was that he was not going to accompany his men on this rescue mission because they didn't know how much space they needed and they were space constrained and he, he was guessing how many patients they would have to deal with. And and some of his men sort of rebelled at that or even suggested that he was afraid. And he, he broke into tears when I was interviewing him about this, which was totally unexpected to me. Um, you know, saying that that peer leadership is hard. And and the way I use use that in the book is to suggest that this incredibly strong uh, cohesion culture made sure that he would not deviate recklessly. Um, from normal procedures, but at the same time, he had enough autonomy and and pure outcome accountability that he was willing to deviate and ad lib if he thought it was tremendously important, but that the bar was really, really high. And so I think that's kind of the best we can do is try to set up these forces that cause people not to conform excessively, mindlessly, and not to deviate all of the time and ignore standard procedures. And and then hope that over a large number of people that 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 gives us a little bit of that blackjack advantage, um, even when individual decisions go wrong. Well, I assume that commander. I assume he was afraid, and I oh, assume yeah, I mean, that he knew he yeah. was afraid, and he probably hated the idea that by making that call he was being selfish, and that's an unbelievable dilemma, right? Where your your brain's telling you. Well, your brain's telling you go, because that's the procedure. That's what that's the quote right thing to do. For some reason, maybe it was fear. He imagined that it might be a good idea to stay home, and it turned out great at that time, that one time, as you point out. But being aware that he may have come up with that solution partly out of fear, especially since it was a, a particularly unknown set of unknowns, uh, probably haunts him terribly. I don't think personally, I don't think he was afraid of dying because he had gone on many of those category alphas, so-called those very dangerous, you know, situations with lots of injuries before. Um, I think, you know, I think he was afraid of, 
uh, having to make a second trip back there, basically, if they didn't have enough room for patients. But I think, as, as he said, was the um, a worse outcome for him than dying would have been he would have had to watch if something went really wrong, he would have watched his whole team die and then have to explain that. And I think for those guys, that's a fate worse than dying. Yeah, and I don't, of course, I don't know nothing about this particular individual. So I'm really working on the fictional art version of the story and, and playing it for for educational purposes. Um, can we shift gears? I, I, I want to talk about something in the book that in a way, I guess, precedes what we're talking about, which is about problem solving generally. Um, I'd like you to talk about the Flynn effect and the testing that a man named Alexander Luria did of pre-moderns in, in IQ because it illuminated a lot of things for me that relate to past episodes of Econ Talk and and questions of how to think about about the world. And I, I'd love for you to, to share that. So in, in short, the Flynn effect is um, the name for this, the the rising scores on IQ tests around the world at a, in the 20th century at a steady rate of about three points per decade. Um, and basically the, the whole curve just shifting over. It's not particularly concentrated in a, in a particular part. Um, it's not concentrated in a particular area uh, of the world. It is, however, most extreme in the more abstract sections of tests or on the more abstract tests. So there's a test called Raven's Progressive Matrices that was created to sort of be the, you know, I don't know if you want to say like the end all of um, uh, cognitive tests where if it, it, it required like, no, it wasn't based on anything that you had learned in school or studied in the world. So it was just, you get, you get these abstract patterns and one is missing and you just have to deduce the rules from the patterns and fill in the missing pattern. And so this was supposed to be the test, like should Martians alight on earth that would be able to determine uh, how clever they were because this test wouldn't, wouldn't require any sort of cultural background. And what James Flynn uh, found was that not only was that not the case, but in fact, the biggest gains in scores over time were uh, specifically on this Raven's progressive matrices. So each generation did better than the last to the point where, you know, our great grandparents would look as if they were mentally handicapped because they would score. I, the, these tests are always norms so that the, the mean score is 100. But in terms of the actual number of questions they got right, they would look like they were impaired compared to us today. And, and my general weren't. impression is that my great grandparents are no smarter or no stupider than I am in terms of raw ability. Right. But you are much more equipped for that, that kind of like for that pattern <laughs> filling. Right. That that sort of those abstract and, and if you look at improve so improvements in scores on on material that's more related to what people learn in school have like barely budged if they've budged at all. And in cases where they've budged on on vocabulary, it's all—it's largely come on abstract words, so things like law or pledge or citizen, as opposed to you know much more concrete um, nouns. And so, the Flynn effect is the name broadly for this increase in IQ scores. But a, an interesting facet of it is that it's—it's it's more apparent in the more abstract tests. And um, this to Alexander Luria, you mentioned. So Alexander Luria was a brilliant young Russian psychologist who, in 1931, um, decided that he wanted to use 
um, uh, essentially um, when this was a time when the Soviet government was forcing agricultural land to become large collective farms and for industrial development uh, to occur. So they were socializing agricultural land. And Luria saw a natural experiment possibility here where he said, okay, I'm going to go out to these areas of these very remote areas of what is now Uzbekistan um, and see if uh, going through this shift from subsistence farming and herding to collective agricultural work and um, vocational training and, and, and some other sorts of school opportunities, will that change the way that people think? Like, will it change their habits of mind? And when he went out there, um, he learned the local language and everything. He, and he brought a team of psychologists. There were some areas that were so remote they were still untouched and some areas that had gone through various degrees of transformation to collective farming from subsistence farming and herding. And so he started studying those people in both conditions and what he found was that, you know, the, the so-called pre-modern um, people who were subsistence farmers or herders were very constrained. And I, I don't mean that in a way to denigrate them, but they were – their habits of mind were very constrained to their exact experiences. So he would ask them questions and they could only answer for things um, that they had – directly experienced. Whereas the greater a dose of modernity they had had, whether that was some exposure to school or to vocational training or even just to collective farming, the more they could start to abstract and make generalizations and and use formal logic and sort of answer questions about things that were they had never experienced. So and this this worked even for really basic things. Like the the people in the more pre-modern condition, if you gave them, you know, a, a, a circle and a and a dotted circle and ask them to make groups of shapes together, they wouldn't put the circle and the dotted circle together because they would say, well, one of these is a coin and one of them is a watch. And you obviously can't put those two things together. Whereas the people who had had some sort of dose of collective work or some school, even if they didn't know the names of the shapes, they would be able to see that they had sort of abstract qualities in common and would group circles together. And so that was some of the most basic examples, but it went all the way up to much more important abstractions where the people who had a dose of modernity were much more able to transfer their knowledge to unusual situations. And that's not to say that that one way is better than the other. It's just that one is much more adapted to the kind of need for transfer of knowledge that, that we experience on a daily basis, basically. The one I found so striking was the three adults and a child are shown and uh, they're, the question is which one's different? What doesn't belong here? And supposedly the person couldn't answer it. And they said, well, don't you see that the child doesn't belong? No, it says the respondent, the, the adults are working. They need the child to help them get stuff when they don't have it and to run errands. So you can't yeah. take the child out. And, you know, there's something um, childlike about that way of thinking almost. Uh, they had the same example, a similar example is like you, you tell the story of there's a hammer, an axe, a saw, and a log. Which one doesn't belong? And they, the right. guy can't figure it out because he says, well, if – why would you throw out the log? Then what's the use of the saw? <laughs> right, right, right. They say it has no use. So all they can think of is like, right, like three are tools and one's a log. They say, well, you could, I guess, you know, the hatchet works because you can use that to cut the log. Um, the knife isn't as useful, but you could hammer it with 
the hammer into the law. Right? So it's, it's it's all this very practical kind of thinking. And again, it's not it's not worse. It's just more adapted to a different kind of situation. And that that was this repeated pattern that Luria kept seeing, like where he could ask sort of formal logic, like he had this this one question where he would say, it was sort of a logic puzzle, he'd say, cotton cotton grows well where it's hot and dry. Um, England is cold and damp, can cotton grow there or not? And sometimes if he really pushed the farmers, because they had, they had direct experience growing cotton, they would resist answering this question. They would say, I've never been to England, I can't tell you. And you know, the psychologist would say, but I just told you it's cold and damp. And as you know, cotton grows well where it's hot and dry. And they say, well, I've never been to England, so I can't tell you. And if he said like, well, you know, but what do my words imply? Like if a place is cold and damp, will it grow there? And they would finally maybe say like, okay, it's not going to grow there. Well, if it's cold and damp. But then he would ask a separate, very similar logic puzzle, which different details, which was something like in the far north where there's snow, all bears are white. Novaya Zemlya is the, is the example he used, is in the far north and there's always snow. What color are the bears there? And they would absolutely refuse to answer. No amount of pushing could get them to answer. They'd say, your words could only be answered by someone who's been there. Even though they had previously sort of, with pushing, answered the question about England because they had experience um, growing cotton, whereas with the bears, they would absolutely refuse to take knowledge and transfer it to another domain and would say, I, how could anyone know? You'd have to ask someone who's seen it. And we take for granted the fact that we do this kind of knowledge transfer all the time. So we're able to use knowledge that relates to things which we have never directly experienced. So Ian McGilchrist in his book, The Master and His Emissary, was on Econ Talk a while back, and he talks about, I mean, this just all kinds of bells went off when I read those those stories because of the McGilchrist book. So McGilchrist talks about the right side of the brain and the left the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. The left hemisphere is is analytical, it's precise, it um it tells itself stories all the time. If it can't fill in the blanks, it's really good at at patterns and it's a little bit reckless because of that. It over samples, it overestimates its ability to to make the world conform to the to the things it sees. The right side of the brain is holistic, connected, um, et cetera, et cetera. And McGilchrist has you know, a lot to say about that. And it's it's a fascinating book and it was, I hope, a good conversation. But I couldn't help thinking that your the Lurie examples are perfect for this distinction. The inability and unwillingness, both, it's, it's two things. The inability and unwillingness of the of a, of a Uzbekistan farmer to weigh in on cotton growing in England strikes me as incredibly wise. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, the, the 800 SAT student nails it. Oh, yeah, no cotton in England. Uh, and polar bears are white in, in Nelvi, wherever. But um, those farmers had it had a rich so I don't think of it as they'd only adapted to their experience I see them taking a much more connected view of of the universe of what we encounter of what we perceive and that the three adults and the, and the child are just such a perfect example of it. it's like it's a silly question and it reminds me a little bit of the trolley problem you know these these sort of abstract moral dilemmas you can save one person if you one person will die if you switch the track, the train is on, but otherwise five people will die. This is something that 
no human being, almost no human being, has ever actually had to do. And you know, there's different versions of it. There's a there's a it's a horrible version. You know, there's, there's a fat guy on a bridge. You can push him over the bridge and stop the train. Would you do that to save the five lives versus the one? Would you be that active? I remember telling my adolescent son. He said, "Well, what if the guy is bigger than me? What if he pushes back?" And you know, there's a temptation to say, "Well, that's a stupid answer. You don't understand. That's not the point of the problem." But that is the point. That that's what life is like. Life is complicated. It's never that simple, right? Oh yeah, no, we're just trying to abstract from that. But those farmers understand that that abstraction is risky. And it just struck me that that this nuance between analogy, case study transferring insights from one field into another. It's one of the most powerful things that human beings can do, and it's unbelievably uh, important for to bring us to the modern world. And at the same time, it's dangerous, and you have to understand its limitations. And those farmers, they're, all, they're, at the, they're in the wicked world 99% of the time, and the SAT kid is in the kind world all the time and thinks that, you know, everything's straightforward. It's all connected. It's all, you know, uh, linear and mathematical, and I can solve for X and Y and just a simultaneous set of equations. And that's not the way life works, I, unless I it does. <laughs> I, think that's a, I think that's a great point. And I think it gets again to this, that your one-star review where the student said, this isn't fair. <laughs> You're asking us to apply the knowledge to things we've never seen, right? And that's kind of what some of the pre-modern farmers were saying, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to answer this question. You're, you're asking me to apply knowledge to things we've never seen. And it's an essential thing for us to do, but it can also be um, a dangerous thing for us to do. And I think it's important to recognize when we are doing it, right? Flynn himself, I remember this is a little bit of an aside, but he, he told me this story where, I think during the Montgomery bus boycotts, where he was, his father, who he said was very much a, uh, you know, a, a man, um, he kind of pre-Flynn effect even basically. So he, he would not have been um, in Flynn's estimation as as far along on, on the Flynn effect and the rising curve. Um, he said a man very much like grounded in the in the literal, I think was how he put it. Uh, he said that he his dad made some derogatory comment about um, the bus boycott and Flynn said, well, how would you feel if you woke up tomorrow and you were black? And Flynn told me that his father said, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Who do you know who ever woke up black? <laughs> right. And so it's like, I'm well, laughing, but it's a it's a tragic. It's an unbelievably powerful counterexample to my story of my son and pushing the guy over the ledge. Uh. But, but it's not but it, but it's not. But I think that's important because these aren't and I think you're identifying this. These aren't zero sum things. Right. It's a power and it's a danger. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the really important thing to recognize. And I think it goes along with that issue of tools, which is this is a kind of knowledge transfer and abstraction we use without even knowing it um, on a daily basis. And I think we would be better off to sort of recognize it because we're going to wield its power one way or the other. You know, but I think we're sometimes blind to to what's really going on. And it would be better off we sort of thought about our own thinking um, in order to to kind of limit our errors a little bit. Yeah, I'm interested in mindfulness and meditation. And one of the things I'm thinking about right now is how to be mindful about our mindfulness. Um, it's not <laughs> it's not easy to do. You, you need – it's a very high level of self-awareness to realize you're applying a tool that you've used a thousand times and maybe the thousand and first time is not the time to use it. It's very – that's a just – it's very powerful. Yeah. Well, I, I want to close with two things. First, 
I want to say something about Adam Smith because we're talking about specialization and the range of things we bring, skills we bring, and the range of tools we bring to a problem. And, you know, Smith saw specialization correctly, I believe, in uh, the Wealth of Nations in 1776. He, he was able to understand, despite the relatively small amount of growth he was experiencing in the world at that time, that specialization combined with trade, and I don't mean just international trade, but exchange generally between people in market settings, that that is the great engine of, of growth and the great engine of the transformation of the standard of living of the world and continues to work that way. And it's uh, the idea that you don't have to do everything for yourself. The idea that you can rely on others is um, one of the deepest ideas in economics. And I want to let you talk a little bit about about that. I often point out that uh, in a world of, you know, I like to say in a world of a thousand, take the thousand most talented people and put them in a place that's rich with resources, an island. They're going to be very poor. <laughs> I don't care how talented they are, how smart they are, you can pick them. You can decide who they are. You can pick it for a range of skills. There's just not enough scope for specialization among a thousand people to have a modern standard of living. And the reason that you and I can have a conversation across Skype and have something that exists called EconTalk is because we live in a world of 7 billion people and we interact with hundreds of millions of them indirectly through exchange and trade. And that allows me to specialize as a podcaster and you as a writer. And that's just not imaginable 500 years ago. It's not imaginable really 200 years ago. And I often use the example of a pediatric oncologist, and I'm sure there's specialties within pediatric oncology, and most of the time that's a really good thing, and you can't be a great pediatric oncologist as a hobby, is my guess. Um, so talk about that balance. Uh, specialization is, in some dimension, necessary for a modern standard of living, but I'd say the theme of your book is it can go too far, as you've said earlier, so talk about that. And also, yeah, I mean, right here you are, the the podcaster economist interviewing the former sports writer with a geology master's. Um, and Adam Smith, of course, I, I learned how much his personal range from your own writing. I had no idea he wrote about happiness and, and such things like that. Um, I think there's an issue of semantics for one, right? Because, and this is, and this is a difficult, this is one I'm going to have to try to harp on uh, as I try to discuss my book, which is that what it means to be a generalist in one era is not the same as what it means to be a generalist in another era, right? So yeah. there, there's been like a Flynn effect of specialization, right? The background itself has changed. And so it's very much one of the reasons I tried to make sure to include a number of scientists in the book and doctors was that not, not just as, as quoting them on a topic, but actually talking about their own careers is that. I think for most people from the outside, they may look like the epitome of specialization, a scientist, right? And I sort of thought about that because I, I was a science grad student and and I wanted to think, well, okay, what, um, you know, if the, these from the outside to most people, this is the epitome of specialization. So in that sense, what does it mean to be broader than they have to be um, or to have range, uh, you know, to, to use my own terminology? So I think some of what's in the book is um, – I, I try to even get at what that even means to expand your breadth when you don't really have to. 
Um, and so, so many practitioners today would be compared are, um, you know, are, are more who, who I would think of as being broad are still more specialized than someone was hundreds of years ago, for sure. For sure. So I think it's very much context dependent to today of what it means to have more breadth today. And, and I think there's some evidence, um, and I go through some of this patent research in the book that actually, at least within the sort of 20th century and beyond, there's an increasing importance or opportunities for generalists where we see like Andy Outerkirk in the book, this, this, um, inventor who then won R and D magazines, innovator of the year, and then decided to study inventors, um, finds that the relative importance of deep specialists and comparative generalists and the way he, he characterizes this by looking at millions of patents and you see people who kind of drill down into a certain area more and more and more and others who work across like a large range of technological classes. And he sees the importance of these different types of individuals to breakthroughs changes over time. And that in and around World War II, uh, the importance of the specialists, their contributions were sort of peaked and it ebbs and flows. And that right now it's declining and he doesn't know for sure why, but he thinks some of the reason is that there's so much knowledge out there and communication technology allows it to be so effectively um, uh, transmitted that there's way more opportunities to and and more likely successful opportunities to recombine well-characterized knowledge that's already out there in new ways than to actually push the cutting edge just a little bit. And so I think even within these very technical domains, I tried to take them on and examine what it means to be a generalist within that given context, as opposed to just being like a dilettante who's someone who's not particularly interested or good at anything, which is what I really want to differentiate um, from a generalist. And I think this gets to something that I that I think I've heard. I don't want to be wrong here. I've heard you talk about this before. No, no maybe not. Sorry. But when, when we think of... Um, technological transformation, you can think of Robert Gordon and he says these, well, all the biggest, we're actually slowing down, right? Like we've, we've made um, enormous strides and now technological progress is slowing down. And I think maybe that discounts some of the more serious applications of communication technology, which communicate the results of specialists of who we still, we still desperately need hyper specialists, but their contributions can be more broadly and quickly disseminated, which provides a lot more opportunities for people who are broader than specialists. And I think that's why some of those things like inocentive, these, you know, which is set up by to solve for like random people to solve the problems that have stumped pharmaceutical companies work. For large amounts because, of money. It, it, right. Describe that site quickly. It's uh, uh, so it started by a VP of research at, at Lilly, where um, first Lilly would post problems that had stumped their chemists. And so many of them were solved by just like random people outside coming from other disciplines and bringing some totally separate knowledge that this VP turned it into its own separate company that helps other companies post problems that have that they've gotten stuck on for just outside solvers. And so I think you mentioned earlier a problem that stuck NASA for 30 years got solved in six months by a guy from a totally like a retired uh, cell phone um, engineer who was like living on a farm in New Hampshire and just brought a totally different approach to it and was like, you know, I kind of can't believe you guys didn't think of this. Um, and so as, as I think the disciplinary boxes get more and more narrow, right, we don't have disciplines. We don't divide up study into disciplines because that's how the world is. We do it because it's easy for us to categorize. And then we try to 
like afterward put the world back together to understand it more in more complexity. And I think as disciplinary boxes get smaller and smaller, more often the knowledge that people need for their problem is outside of that box. And so it's important to have those specialists, but it's also more important to engage people from outside and people who are broader. And I think we've really seen that in medicine where specialization has been inevitable and fruitful and also incredibly problematic in ways where a cardiologist used to be highly specialized. Now a specialized cardiologist is someone who might only study cardiac valves, like the little flaps that let blood in and out. The electricity, the rest of the heart muscle is totally out of their purview. And what happens in that case is everyone works on what's called surrogate markers, where someone might have a problem, and so that cardiologist might fix the problem with the valve. But what you really care about is if that person's going to have a heart attack, stroke, or die. And what we find in many cases is that a specialist affects the surrogate marker, and so everything's great, and then the person just dies with a, a better heart valve at the, or has a heart attack and stroke at the same rate, or we regulate blood pressure, and you, what you get is people dying at the exact same rate with great blood pressure because everyone's working with surrogate markers. And so I think that's inevitable and useful and also very problematic and that we need to recognize both sides of that. So normally at this point, I would say, um, I thank you for being part of Econ Talk, but I'm going to add a personal note here. And we're way over normal time. I don't care. I hope listeners are enjoying this. I am. Um, I want to let listeners know that yesterday you and I, David, tried to record this episode and you live in the D.C. area. I live in the D.C. area. And we thought, I thought, you know, I, most of these I do over Skype, but you live fairly nearby. We'll do it face-to-face. And uh, we had technical problems in making that recording, and it didn't happen. We, I dragged you down to my office in, in downtown D.C. and wasted uh, your time, and I was embarrassed uh, that it didn't work out well, and I offered it to take you to lunch, partly because I thought we'd have a nice conversation, but partly just because I felt bad. So we went to lunch, and we had a great conversation, I thought, at lunch. I was a little uneasy about it because I thought, you know, we may end up talking about stuff we're going to talk about in the actual interview, and sometimes it'll sound stale if we've already talked about it. But I said, oh, well, whatever. And so we had that conversation. And I am uh, confident, although I have some confirmation bias here, so I have to be careful I'm confident this is a dramatically better conversation uh, than we would have had yesterday face-to-face where we'd, we'd never met before. I should That's important. Mm-hmm. We'd never uh, met each other face-to-face. We'd only had our conversation over the uh, Skype when in 2013 with your first book. And because we met, I, I think this conversation today, a day later, is much better. So I think it's a small example of failure <laughs> turning into something really – uh, really excellent. So uh, I want to thank you for your patience yesterday and uh, your patience today. But um, there was uh, a benefit from that 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 trial and error. I think. Oh, that that's great to hear. And, and I didn't know you were embarrassed, and you absolutely shouldn't have been because it was out of your control. So um, not, not your fault. And then you bought me lunch, and I ended up with like a half dozen new things on my reading list, which is. <laughs> since I have no idea what I'm going to do next, actually tremendously important for me to get suggestions to read things that I uh, you know, wouldn't otherwise come into contact with. And it's one of the perks of my job to get to, to, to uh, 
scrutinize my own ideas and other ideas with people like you. So there's absolutely nothing to feel embarrassed about. It was, you know, you can't control the ventilation system at that building. Um, and it was a pleasure. So I didn't expect it, but I really enjoyed the conversation. So let's close with um, a tougher personal question. How does this experience of writing this book, which took you a while, it's a lot of digging and and interviewing and thinking and reading and then writing. How's it changed your own perception of yourself and how you see your own career? For one, I don't, I have no idea what I'm going to do next. Um, like when I recently went Scared. to MIT Sloan Sports Analytics, not, not nearly as much as I would have been. <laughs> so I have career changed a lot um, and constantly been told that it's a bad idea. I will get behind. Um, and again, and this is my, for sure, some of my own confirmation bias, right? But I now think that these things, this changing, this experimenting, which in many cases did put me temporarily behind, but then my growth rates were very quick. Uh, ultimately, what I did, I think, is a crude sort of a group of skills where I may not be the very best at any one of them, but I kept sort of zigzagging from one area to another where I could be pretty good at a whole bunch of different things, which ended up with me being able to compete on my own ground. So I'm not in zero-sum competition with anybody else for whatever beat I'm writing about. Um, and that was the same thing at Sports Illustrated. I ended up writing you know, a book that found an audience because my science background was the most useful thing there. And it meant I wasn't waiting in line to be the next NFL beat reporter. So I think traveling this zigzagging journey has led me to have a toolbox where I might not have the absolute sharpest tool in any one of those things, but I end up competing in a place where I'm the only one. And so I'm just competing against myself. And if I can do something interesting, then, then I can have some good outcomes. And I'm now uh, confident that, you know, I've read quotes like this, just like this from, um, Christopher Nolan, the director, and Eric Larson, the writer, where they say, between projects, I just have to read with no apparent purpose to find my next project. And I used to criticize myself for that, thinking it was inefficient. And now I think it's actually what gives me this expansive personal search function where I might come up with projects that others don't. So I feel more comfortable and emboldened in the fact that I am proactively not going to look for another job quite yet and and just go back to letting my mind roam and, and hope to alight on that next project. Where I used to always think every time I did a project, I'll never find another good one. Now I feel much more confident that my meandering actually will continually lead to new projects. My guest today has been David Epstein. His book is Range. David, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It's a pleasure. And thanks for challenging us, um, challenging all my ideas. It really helps me sharpen my own thinking and, and, and a lot of my ideas should be critiqued and I appreciate that the way you do it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>